Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 228. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And welcome to the start of baseball season. Yes, baseball season just started for real. The Yankees killed it. What a start to the season. Anyway, that's besides the point, but I'm super excited. Yes, and for fans as teams such as the Anaheim Angels, the New York Mets, and the Boston Red Sox, there's always spring training. Good luck next year. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Wow. What can I tell you? Gauntlet thrown out the gate. Uh, You know, it's been a real... I've been excited to do this month because in spite of certain fans of some teams, like the ones I just mentioned, crying about the World Baseball Classic, the World Baseball Classic was so exciting this year, and it had fans insane. The Miami Marlins can't give tickets away, and yet they sold out all of those games in Miami because people are so excited that I got jacked up and I got fired up to get into this baseball month. And thankfully, I think, we had a listener request, a very loyal listener. Melissa had requested that we do this film, A Kid in King Arthur's Court. Well, we do need to give credit where credit is due because she actually inspired the idea of Baseball Month. She had requested this film a while ago. And it kind of got my wheel spinning. And I was like, you know, there are so many amazing Disney baseball films we should really just dedicate a whole month to it. And we didn't do it last spring because... Uh, we'd moved? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. And we, we weren't sure that we were going to be able to commit to an episode a week. So I think that's why. And there was also, if I'm not mistaken, a big anniversary around April last year. So we just decided to push the whole themed month back. But I am so ready for this. And as I remember, I don't even think we had all of our movies here yet. Because a a large chunk of our DVDs didn't make the first pod. They made it on the second. So I think we we just did not want to commit to doing a full month, especially because, like, some of the titles we're going to discuss for reasons I can't quite understand are not on Disney Plus yet. Right. Now, that's not the case for a kid in King Arthur's Court, which I have a very lukewarm history with. All right. So here's the deal. I loved Rookie of the Year as a kid. Tom, Thomas Ian Nicholas in Rookie of the Year. Chicago Cubs was the closest thing they had to a World Series until 2016. <laughs> and so A Kid in King Arthur's Court comes out. And I remember thinking, and I was, I think, nine or ten years old when this movie came out. And Nine. We would have been nine. Kind of getting to that point in time where... For at least for a for a boy, you're kind of starting to age out of Disney a little bit. You're kind of in that weird in between, right? Uh, you know, and for people that are not aware, this was you know there was no Marvel, there was you know there was no Star Wars that Disney owned. So Disney really did animated films, princess films, and and movies like this. And I, I remember thinking to myself, well. This is kind of just going to be a remake of Rookie of the Year, like in my mind, because it's the same actor playing a baseball player. My grandmother was at Costco Price Club, you know, whatever you want to call it, and she saw that they were selling the VHS, and she thought, 
Oh, how wonderful. I'll treat my grandchildren who play Little League Baseball to this Disney film with a baseball player called A Kid in King Arthur's Court. I watched the movie. No, you know what? I didn't even finish it. I watched it about halfway through, and I disliked it so much that the, the VHS went on the shelf for a couple of years before I finally donated it to the Northport Public Library. Poor Nan. Her heart was in the right place. Her heart was in the right place, but I, I just there was something about the movie that didn't do it for me. But it's my understanding that you watched this quite a bit. I did. It was not... This is going to make for a very interesting review, by the way. Um, it was not my staple. It was my brother's. What? Because, yeah, at this point, as you said, we're nine years old. So I'm certainly not aging out of Disney yet, but I was very much still, you know, Disney Renaissance, animation. Um, it, it wouldn't have been my first choice to pick out a film like this. Right. But with my brother, he had picked it out at the video store so many times and we rented it so many times and he was just always talking about it um, that it finally wore my mother down enough and that was one of the VHS tapes that we ended up owning just because she was like, at this point, I'm not going to pay to rent it when we could just own the thing. Um, We have it to this day. On my last trip to New York, I saw it in the basement and I was like, oh, I got to grab a picture of this. So we do have the picture of our original VHS cover, which I will be posting. Um, but he watched it so much. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. It's not to say that I didn't like the film as a kid, um, but I watched it quite a bit with him. Um, I remember quoting it a lot with him. And I remember, I don't know why this is the weird things that stick with you. Um, he would play with Play-Doh. Now, mind you, because I'm nine years old, that makes him five. So he is like perfect age for this. Uh He would play with Play-Doh. And for whatever reason, he just loved the boar snout scenes so much. So he would make boar snout out of Play-Doh and like put out this spread for the Knights of the Round Table. Interesting. It actually makes a lot of sense. Well, my brother's an interesting guy. You know this. All right. Well, has your review changed over the years? Has my review changed over the years? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. Merlin returns from the dead to summon a knight to claim Excalibur and save Camelot. In present day, we see Calvin Fuller, a struggling baseball player. I wrote Little Leaguer. More on that later. (laughs) Fall through a hole in the earth following an earthquake and land in medieval Camelot where the Black Knight has stolen a box from King Arthur. Cal lands on the Black Knight leading to the return of the box to King Arthur. Cal is captured and taken to Arthur, which angers Lord Belasco, who is secretly double-crossing the king. Belasco accuses Cal of working for the Black Knight, so Cal uses rock music to win his battle to prove his innocence and is invited to dine with Arthur and his daughters, Katie and Sarah. Wanting to find his way home, 
Katie takes Calvin to Merlin's quarters where they find Excalibur and seek to find the spirit of Merlin. There, Merlin sees Cal and believes that he has summoned him by mistake. Merlin tells Cal that he must prevent Belasco from taking Camelot from Arthur, so the next day he starts training with Lord Kane on the ways of being a knight. We also learn that Sarah has refused all suitors, so on her 21st birthday, a tournament will be held and the winner receives her and Camelot as a prize. Belasco tries to court Sarah, but she has no interest, so he instead convinces Arthur that he must marry Sarah, but she decides to let the tournament decide. Belasco is furious to hear this, so he starts to scheme again. While on a picnic, Cal tells Katie that Merlin came to him and told him that he was brought to save Camelot. They then see the Black Knight is stealing from Arthur to give back to the starving people of Camelot. Cal walks Katie to her room following a kiss, and inside her room she is captured by one of Belasco's men. Back in Merlin's quarters, Merlin tells Cal to take, Exca take Excalibur and save Camelot. Belasco tells Sarah that he will kill Katie if she does not agree to marry him and gives her until the tournament to decide. Belasco attempts to arrest Cal for Katie's quote-unquote murder, but he escapes and Sarah tells him Belasco's plans. Sarah tells him to go to Arthur and tell him of Belasco's plan as well. He tells Arthur of what Belasco has done and Belasco arrives to tell Arthur that Katie was killed by Calvin. So Arthur tells him to find Cal as a ruse to send Belasco away. The next day, Cal tells Arthur of the sickness and starvation in Camelot caused by Belasco stealing from his residence and how they have turned on the king because Belasco is doing this all in the name of Arthur. So they head into Camelot in disguise to evade Belasco and his men. Cal also tells him that the Black Knight is on their side. Sarah goes to Cain to say goodbye and that she must marry Belasco because apparently they have been seeing each other behind closed doors. Cal and Arthur find Katie and break her free before fighting off Belasco's men and the following morning Arthur knights Calvin. Sarah tells Belasco that she will consent to marrying him. However, Arthur, Cal, and Katie arrive so Belasco runs off to prepare for the tournament and Arthur lets him go to buy themselves time because he's going to expose Belasco to all at the tournament. The king then announced at the tournament that the tournament will be open to all free men, not just those of royal blood. So Cain enters the tournament, and it all comes down to him and Belasco. But Belasco cheats in his pursuit of winning the tournament, and as they joust, Cain is not knocked off of his horse. However, he is knocked unconscious. So Cain returns to the tournament and defeats Belasco, but it turns out that it is Cal wearing Cain's armor. The Black Knight then arrives and humiliates Belasco and unmasks herself to reveal that she is in fact Sarah all along, and she chooses Cain as her suitor. So now Cain will go on to marry her and claim Camelot. Using Merlin's magic, they send Cal back to present day, where he picks up where he left off in his baseball game, hits a game-winning home run in front of King Arthur and Katie, who are spectating the entire time. Who he actually strands at second base before the earthquake happens. They get a tight shot of her, and it is the actress playing Katie on second base. So I suppose kudos for consistency, but 
that's a little confusing. Anyway, uh, before we launch into this, I do want to start off by debunking um, the theory that this is supposed to be based off of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Um, Because I think that there's a lot of people who believe that this is a straight adaptation, and it's not. In Connecticut Yankee, the main character is older, and he you know, time travels into the medieval era and tries to instill democratic values into the feudal system. And that's where your comedy comes from because the people of Camelot are very superstitious. Uh, So here, obviously, Cal is not trying to insert democracy into the system, uh, but he's obviously trying to course correct because... The people of Camelot, uh, or King Arthur, I should say, has fallen out of favor with the people of Camelot. Right. Um, but it just sort of blows my mind that Disney did not even have to acknowledge that it's loosely based on. Yeah, because the most that they have in common is somebody goes back to Camelot. I mean, basically, that's that's where the similarities end. I think there's a lot more parallels than that, but... I mean, I guess just by virtue of one of them's a teenager, he's a kid, you know, you probably were able to take a little liberty with it. But I mean, as far as trying to change the system and change the way things are for for the better, yeah, it's kind of surprising that they don't nod to it. All right, let's get right into it. The movie opens with Merlin appearing in a well and basically... I'm coming back. I need a great night to save Camelot. End. End scene. Um, but I'm I'm actually kind of okay with that because you don't really need to do a lot of fleshing out to explain what is about to happen and why Merlin is summoning a knight. I sort of go back and forth because what strikes me so much is how incredible this set is underneath the opening credits. And I'm watching this and I'm like, man, computer wore tennis shoes there are so many films that would have benefit from just doing the opening credits cheaply like this you have your set already built all they did was take some beauty shots of it and presto it, it's just such an easy fix yeah to do cheap credits and there are so many films that we have scrutinized the credits for like um like Gus, how it oh was my God, with Gus. just cut so oddly and they were in the middle of a scene. It's like, why not do something like this? Um, so this was obviously a very quick and easy solution. However, I am sort of surprised that they didn't start with the opening credits either over the baseball game and then cut right to the action of the earthquake or perhaps even put them over this t- the heist from the Black Knight. And then Merlin does the introduction of we need someone to save Camelot. Yeah, because it throws you off as the audience, right? Like, they're going to do that enough with the Black Knight. But, yeah, it would lead you to believe from the jump that the Black Knight is the villain. And that is why Merlin Merlin is bringing a knight in. But, I mean, that would kind of... Here's the thing. Merlin knows all, right? Because Merlin's not alive. He's in the afterlife. So he knows that Belasco is up to something. So I guess it would have been odd for him to summon Cal and and to not mention the Black Knight as an adversary. Right. And 
as you said, because he is all knowing and because he can see into the future, he knows that the Black Knight is one of the good guys. Right. It's just not revealed to us as the audience yet. All we know is that something was taken from King Arthur and Belasco is helping him get it back. We don't know that, in fact, the Black Knight is doing this to steal from the rich and give to the poor. Right. Or in this case, her father, as we're going to see. So let's get to the baseball game in the opening scene. 90s Little Sister 101. There is so much wrong with this entire thing. And I remember as soon as this scene started, and I haven't watched this movie since roughly 1995 or 1996, whenever the VHS came out. As soon as this scene started, I went, yep, that's why I shut it off. (laughs) And I'm trying to put a certain bias aside with Thomas Ian Nicholas because we've seen him do the baseball thing before. However, we've seen him do the baseball thing before. This is the absolute worst type of typecast that you can find. A kid who is in love with the game that isn't terribly good at it, that needs to learn how to play it the right way. Now, it's more fantastical in 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 Rookie of the Year because, you know, he slips on the ball, he shatters his arm, he ends up in the cast, his muscles are tight, and he can throw a crazy fastball. In this case, he's just completely clueless. The problem is that this came out a few years after Rookie of the Year, and I'm by a few, I think like three, maybe two, but I think it was three. But Thomas Ian Nicholas, at this point, is a teenager. He's hit a growth spurt. He's not 11 or 12 years old anymore. 10, really, if you think about when they shot Rookie of the Year, right? So, in that respect, he looks too old to just be learning the game for the first time. Like, the way that he holds the bat, the way that he is so timid at the plate, the way that his coach needs to literally come out to the batter's box and tell him how to hit a ball. This is what they teach you when you're five years old in T-ball. He's way too old to be getting this explanation now. I will agree with you because, I mean, I don't know if this was... A, the director's choice or Thomas Ian Nicholas's choice, he is hardly covering that plate at all. He's like a good foot back from where he needs to be to actually protect that plate. Um, so I I totally agree with you there. Um, and I will partially agree on the dialogue with the coach. I think the entire reason that they did that is because they're going to call back to it later when he's in training with Kane with telling him the three things. But I can sort of let all of it slide because this is character development. We have to remember that this isn't really a movie about baseball, which is funny because I remembered it being a lot more about baseball than it actually is. But he wears the baseball jersey through the entire film. This still counts for baseball month. It gets a pass. But anyway, um, For me, this is more about character because Calvin's entire arc is going to be about gaining confidence in himself. So I don't think it's so much about not knowing how to play as it is about 
he's just going to choke every time he's up at the plate. And they, they even say as much like the sister says he doesn't even try. But you're right. To your point, the coach should make it about that and and make it about his fear and try to instill that confidence in him as opposed to stating the obvious what he needs to do to just swing. I'm going to jump ahead to like three quarters of the way through the movie because as I had written this plot out originally, I wrote Little Leaguer because it wouldn't appear that he's playing for a high school team. Frankly, he's not good enough to play for a travel team. So... If you're not playing on a on a high school team, which he's not good enough to do, and he's clearly not good enough to play on a travel team because he never he never would have been taken on a travel team because he's so inept. That's why I wrote Little Leaguer. It's very much developmental baseball. Yeah, like a youth organization. That's yeah. what I did with softball. I didn't play for my school. Yeah, but he says later on in the film to... Katie, oh yeah, and it, it had nothing to do with baseball, but it had something to do with history, I think. And he goes, yeah, they taught us that in eighth grade. He's speaking past tense. He is in high school. Uh, and, and he, he says it to the blacksmith in a, uh, eighth grade metal shop. That's what it was. You're right. So he's hearkening back to already having gone through junior high school. He is at, at minimum... He is a high school freshman. I think my big problem, I'm going to get this out of the way now. I think my biggest problem with this movie is the fact that he's 15 years old, roughly. 14, as confirmed by the Disney archives. But they're playing him as if he's 10. Like... I think rooting him around being a baseball player that does not have a clue how to play the game by the age of 14 and yet somehow has made a team that he shouldn't have made because you're already past developmental baseball. I don't know, maybe softball works differently, but I know once you get past fifth grade, there is no more Little League. You either play for your junior high school or you play travel ball, but there are tryouts, and that's like that's your first splash of cold water where there is no participation trophy. You can't just show up. So, and 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 the thing is, 1995. That's around the time that I started aging out of little league. So you can't even say, well, you're talking a product of your time because this was happening at the same time. Well, I think you could make the argument if it wasn't a high school team, which does get a little confusing because he does know the pitcher's name. So if you're playing on your high school team, like, well, no, it wouldn't be two teams for the same high school. So that's where I also lean towards youth organization. But it's odd that he would know the other player's name if he's not in school with that person. But I mean... I could make that argument, too, because on my softball league, I played with people from my school and with people that lived like in middle school. They lived in the same town. But there was another there was a different school that they could go to just based on which zip code they were actually in. Right. But this is my whole problem. And it didn't dawn on me until the second viewing which really was my third viewing in my (laughs) lifetime, is that 
I think rooting this around baseball was a mistake. Because baseball is such a, it's not a fundamental part of the movie, but I think that they were trying to hook little boys, and little boys like baseball. And the thing is, around the time that this movie came out, this was in like a three to four year span where you had The Sandlot, Rookie of the Year, Angels in the Outfield, Little Big League, Major League Two. The, like baseball movies were so a thing yes. that they rooted it around that. If they had just made him a kid that was, you know, maybe the nerdy kid that loved history and like really liked King Arthur and liked the Knights of the Round Table and then the earthquake happens, he could just be walking across a ba- he could be walking across a field on his way home from school, fall through the earth and oh my god, this is scarier than I thought it was. This is not as cool as I thought it was. Maybe he starts second guessing his obsession with the subject. That would have been just fine. I think rooting him in baseball and making him bad at it. Like he's too old to be that bad and still playing the game. Or if you just had this kid who is looking to gain some confidence decide on a whim that he wants to join, then it would have set everything up because it would have established why he hasn't been playing since he was a child and he just wanted to join this league even though he has no experience because anyone can participate and then he eats it in front of everyone. Right. It or he's w- playing in PE or something, right? Right. Because it would have set up everything we need because you are absolutely right. Baseball could have been any sport in this film because the whole point of it is to show Calvin's character arc and that he gains confidence by the end of this film. So, I mean... To your point, there were so many baseball films that probably was an obvious choice. You also have to put him on a team sport, but where he can be singled out. I mean, could you do that with football where he gets tackled immediately? Probably. Um, But for me, this gets a pass because it's all character development. Let's move on and get to Camelot. Yeah, believe it or not, a majority of my notes were just on that topic, so (laughs) it's time to go. Let's talk about the amazing set that is Camelot. It's incredible. It was something that I always took for granted as a kid because they just made the world so believable, but watching as an adult, I was kind of like, wow, they really went all out for this. However, I was immediately disappointed because Disney actually found this set. Uh, They shot in Budapest and they stumbled across it because it was being used for a BBC show. That was in it was on hiatus at the time. (laughs) Yes. So they just kind of took it over. Still amazing. Yeah, it still looks great. But, you know, you're right. It's a little disappointing to learn that. Disney kind of tripped and fell into this set, and it wasn't something that they themselves developed. But it was still too early for CGI, so they would have figured it out anyway. Um, I think the costumes are great, too. I I mean, everything about setting the stage, they do it perfectly. The other thing that they do really well is that through some quick throwaway lines amongst the town people and amongst Belasco's men, we know right away that the people of Camelot have fallen... Well, well, King Arthur has fallen out of favor with them. Um, 
They do it quick. They do, like I will give this film credit for this. The pacing for this entire movie is really, really good. Um, they don't waste a lot of time on things. They don't waste a lot of time fleshing things out. Everything is quick, quick, quick. Get to the action. Get into a scene. Get out of a scene. Like the pacing of this film is actually outstanding. Yeah, they do a very good job of creating that unrest, especially because we go from the village. They drag Cal into the not round table into the dinner scene where the king and all of his knights and ladies are absolutely feasting. I mean, Calvin is bought three separate dishes in a matter of about 30 seconds. Yeah. And they, they kind of take to him really quickly, almost too quickly. Yeah. This is where even I will admit, and I, again, this was not my film. I watched it a whole bunch. So I don't have my rose colored glasses on as much as I did enjoy it as a kid, but this scene got a little clunky for me. Um, I totally buy that Belasco is deranged and he's going to challenge him right away. I'll even buy that the king doesn't do anything to help him out. And it's just like, well, this is the custom. Choose your weapon. What I don't like is hearing Calvin's internal dialogue of I've got to choose. I've got to choose. It is such weak sauce writing. Yeah. And we just spent a whole bunch of time talking about his character development uh, as depicted in the baseball scene. Here is where we should be learning that Calvin is kind of an ingenious kid and seeing him put the wheels together of, you know, if he's going to talk out loud, he should have opened the backpack. What do I have on me? What can I use? What what do I have from here? And we're later going to unpack that he's got all this knowledge from eighth grade mental shop and, you know, he knows how to communicate the way that he wants things built so it just would have been nice to see that connective tissue of, okay, I have my disc man on me. Kids, a disc man is what we put CDs in. CDs are what we had before iPods and Spotify. And I'm really dating myself here. But anyway, um, it just would have been nice to see him piece that together and how he knew it would work, putting the, putting the earbuds into the horn. That was a little bit of a stretch, I think. Do you know what my big problem with this is? It's a time travel movie, isn't it? This is a time travel movie. Yes. It uses rock music to scare people. Right. The same exact thing happens in Back to the Future. Oh, it does, but he's... When he says to George, it, yeah. my name is Darth Vader... I'm an extraterrestrial yeah. from the planet Vulcan. Yep. And he puts the Van Halen tape on and scares George in his sleep, in, scares him into inviting Lorraine to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Oh, and see, I was thinking about, as soon as you said it, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance where he plays. And no. that's why I would have never made that connection because he's playing guitar versus using the disc man. No, he took his Walkman. And he put the headphones on George's head and scared him into submission. It's it's the same exact thing. Well, I mean, are we surprised at this point? They don't even credit a Connecticut Yankee. So, of course, they're going to, you know, pull from other films. But you get Hans. Hans is back as King <laughs> Arthur. Yes. So, I mean, that's exciting enough. So, again... I remember getting through this scene as a kid and I this was just about the point where I was like all right I'm going to turn this movie off because I th- cuz in fact I think if I if I remember correctly 
I shut it off because I said, well, if I'm going to watch this, I'm just going to watch Back to the Future, which is one of my favorite movies as a kid. And I think I literally left my brother to finish this, and I went upstairs to the other VCR and just watched Back to the Future, if I remember correctly, is the exact thing that I did. Wow. What a brat kid. Like, nothing. You wouldn't have even wanted to watch a movie just for the sake of watching a movie? Not if I didn't like it. But there were not a lot of movies that I would shut off. Like, even as a kid, like, you'd have to do something pretty egregious. But you're taking two movies that I had a strong affinity for, and you're melding them together and doing a kind of a poor job at it. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, other than the fact that he's really not good at baseball at all, they just... this this just felt like they were ripping something else off. Well, we got the Back to the Future the reference, so hold on tight. Ghostbusters is coming, I'm sure. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to find out. Let's talk about uh, once Cal settles in uh, and Katie comes to his room yes. to quote-unquote check in on him at, his, at her father's request, which is not true. She's crushing on him already. Um, well, he's got a quite pleasant face. <laughs> and and really interesting boxers. Um, this set is so realistic. It never occurred to me how absurd it is to have a young actress grab a torch and put out a fire when they go into the secret passage. Like, when, I, when I'm watching this, I'm like, you know, she's got really long hair. It's fallen over her shoulder. I was, like, really impressed by that whole scene. Granted, um, this actress is a little bit older than um, Thomas. She's actually older than Kate Winslet was when she filmed this movie. And she's playing the younger sister. But I think she's about five years older than Thomasy and Nicholas. She which was. Is I looked. kind of awkward. It gets that way. But only if you're aware of it, which... Spoiler, <laughs> we're all aware of it now. But she delivers what I think is the best line in the movie in this scene, actually. When she's telling Cal, they're having a back and forth, and he says, you know, I just want to go home. I miss my parents because they know him as Calvin from Reseda, mm-hmm. the bowling capital of the world. Um, I, I do love how that carries throughout the film, by the way, how he's got this title. Yeah, but he says... uh you know, he says, I miss my parents. And she's told us about how she lost Guinevere, her mother, and how her father has not been the same since her mother passed away. And she says, I miss my mother, but I miss my father even more. It's the best line in the movie. It is one of the most deep and poignant things a Disney character has ever said. And she, to me, she pulls it out. I mean, we're going to, we're going to get into the characters a lot more obviously, but she's like really nailing like the doe eyed innocent thing without that becoming annoying. Like my, my comparison is Joey on Dawson's Creek, but Katie Holmes got super annoying about it. So let's talk about the secret passageway though, out of this room. This is, I think, what hooked me and my brother. We were, like, all about secret passages and this kind of thing. I'm fine with the secret passage. I think it's cool, and I totally buy the fact that a castle would have secret passageways. However, Calvin has a flashlight. And it's put in there so that he can use modern technology... In medieval times. He's already done it with the disc man. 
He's now doing it with the flashlight. I totally buy the fact that you would bring a disc man to a baseball game. A lot of people listen to music during practice. Who brings a freaking oh, mag light to goodness. a baseball game? Who brings a mag light to a baseball game? I mean, really. Bat, ball, gloves, batting gloves, stick them. Perhaps black, a change of clothes. A change of clothes and your your cleats and, and your disc man, walk man, and a water bottle. But I'm also going to bring super glue that I use later in the film. <laughs> and I just happen to have a mag light on me. I mean, you need to give this kid some kind of fighting chance to survive this ordeal. But if he would, this, but this is where, again, this is where the baseball thing fails me. I think it fails the film. He would never, you, nobody brings a flashlight in their baseball bag. Now, if he had had his backpack and he had been doing something at school, and maybe let's not even give him a flashlight. We'll give him a lighter. Maybe he lights a Bunsen burner in science class, and he's got the lighter on him, and that's what he uses to relight the torch. Now he can just summon fire in the palm of his hand. Or the burning rain of death, like in your favorite movie. Yeah, whatever. But it works. Th- that, to me, works more than I just happen to have this flashlight next to my baseball equipment. It, you get, do you see what I mean? No, I do, and... I thought you were going to have more of an issue with in every scene he goes back and grabs this backpack because he needs his arsenal on him. Like in the middle of the earthquake, everybody get out of the dugout. He runs back in to save his flashlight, theoretically, yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> and his disc man. Um, anytime Belast goes after him, he makes sure to grab the backpack because there's always something in there that he needs. That's more what I take issue with than anything else is that there are some times where he needs to just go and it's not without my backpack. Well, that's the thing. It's not like there's something in the backpack that he's trying to protect that like we're all aware of, you know, like there's always that movie where it's like the talisman and he's got to like go back and get it. Yeah. He doesn't have the Tesseract in his backpack. Exactly. So it's, it just, the whole thing is just strikes me as odd, but we're going to immediately get him uh, into night training where we're introduced to Lord Kane and Daniel Craig, that man does not, I'm sorry, he doesn't age. He looks exactly the same. Except for his haircut. Yeah, I mean, we are going to get into character. We're going to delve into it a lot deeper, but I have to ask now, like, what was going through your mind? Not as a kid, because you didn't know what he was going to become at this point. But when you realized that your beloved James Bond was in this film. What is going through your mind? Well, I look at it and I go, I got James Bond in this movie, and I've got James Bond in Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which is a movie that I <laughs> loved. Um, I mean, look, he and Kate Winslet, they are, and th- this goes beyond the fact that they've become superstars in their craft. They're, they're the two best talents in the movie. And you sh- knew, you know what I'm saying? Watching like, them, yeah. It's just like he, he's so he's so married to the role in this film that it's like, well, of course this guy would become a superstar. I mean, Batman was a newsie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, if you think about it, like you you can tell, and and sometimes it's right away, and sometimes it's not until much later on when you just these these actors or actresses that just completely sell the role to themselves like they stand out 
I remember that even as a kid where just through the relationship that Kane develops with Calvin, they make him so likable. It's so easy to want to root for him to, to really embrace the excitement when the King states that he can compete and to root for him once he starts. Um, but I think, you know, that's all in the groundwork here during this training. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this scene, though. First of all, why is Katie there? Why has she been training as if she's going to be called into combat? Like, I buy that for Sarah's character because we're eventually going to reveal her as the Black Knight. Right. And if this is her boyfriend, which we are also going to reveal... I'll totally buy that she's learned to joust or, you know, sword fight or whatever. Would have also been an Apple opportunity to drop that hint that they were a thing. Exactly. Um, I actually like that they held it, though, and I will get into that later. Um, I want to give props to Thomas Ian Nicholas because I feel like he handles the physical comedy really well. Yeah. I think this is also where baseball works to the advantage of the film, because if you did have him on a football team or soccer or another sport. And if you really sold him as an athlete, this scene is going to fall flat. We have to believe that it's low self-esteem and just not a lot of athletic ability. And he's really got to harness that. Um, So I think that that all works here, not only for his character, but as I said, the relationship that he's going to develop with Kane, because Kane teaches him just as much about the, theory as he does about the the mental aspects of this competition um but yeah i mean kane just totally steals the scene here and i do like that he calls back to the coaches three things even though it does not work as it pertains to baseball right i mean the closest thing you're going to get to baseball is he learns how to swing a battle axe which will then come into play later when he hits the home run that also explains why this battle axe falling out the window is so bad because if they were using that BBC set, it's for the village. So they don't actually have the Camelot castle built. And to me, I mean, I know it's 1995 CGI, but you, you couldn't have staged this on a sound, a soundstage. Well, I mean the, the, when he falls through the well, when you used (laughs) to, um, when you used to do the CGI or, you know, they would put you in a scene like they they did it at Earthquake at Universal Studios. Yes. And they put you in front of a blue screen and mm-hmm. like a fan and you had to like, oh, look at me. And they would did it. Uh, I think they, they did it at Hollywood Studios as well on the Backlot Tour. You know, I think. Yes. They, they did yeah, it there yeah. as well. I think around like the Captain Duck stuff mm-hmm, that they did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like uh, that's what it looks like. It honestly, that looks like what you saw in Hollywood Studios. Like it's very clear that he's just standing there waving his hands in the air like whoa i'm falling um yeah not great even by 1995 standards not no, great. and it wouldn't have been hard at all because you built one wall the facade of one wall it's not even like they built you know like the turret of a castle or something you could have very easily had someone stand behind there and throw the axe out yeah i mean you could have made it out of foam you could have made it out of wood you know something that's not going to be all that dangerous Yes. But it is what it is. Um, Let's talk about the rollerblades. Yes. Because this is the first time that you see Cal go to the blacksmith. And 
he has him make another pair of rollerblades that he then gives to Katie. And the rollerblades that were in his backpack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like also the Mary the roller- Poppins bag. There's yeah. so much in there. There's just stuff that just keeps coming out. <laughs> but funny, not one piece of baseball equipment, not a glove, <laughs> not a bat, not anything. Not, the closest thing that he pulled out of that bag that he would have had on the baseball field, other than maybe the disc man, was the pack of chewing gum. I'll give you that. Um, but I, I kind of like the fact that he has her, you know, he he has the blacksmith make her the rollerblades. It's fun to see, I mean, that's fair, it's for kids, right? It's fun to see people in rollerblades skating around Camelot. But, like, never once, and, and they go right into King Arthur when he's having his breakfast, and they're on rollerblades, and, like, he doesn't bat an eye. Like, he, he acts like he saw this yesterday. Like, it's common practice for people to be on rollerblades in Camelot. Well, I think they are, especially because they bothered to set it up with the line, I miss my father even more. I think that they leaned too far into senility to portray yeah. him being out of touch so that he didn't come off as mean. Because you have to be rooting for him and his family, right? So if they just made him this you know, king that sat on his throne and truly didn't care about his people, you're not going to have much to bite into with his character. So I think that they just, they almost make him a little demented, which I think goes too far. So I will buy that because they've bothered to set all this up that he didn't even notice. Uh, But I do really like this idea of the rollerblades. I think it's like a cute... um, they're not exactly on a date yet, but that's like the perfect way to dip their toes in the water because we've yeah. seen the training sequence. Now it's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, the princess is going to let her hair down. I'm going to show her how to have a little fun. Um, I think it's really cute. And I also like um, the relationship that he's developing with the blacksmith too. Yeah, and that that's obviously going to grow later on. But it's funny that you mentioned that with King Arthur because it sort of reminds me of a less funny version of the Sultan from Aladdin. Yes. Yeah. And that's funny that you say that because Belasco always reminded me of Jafar. I think it's the robe more than anything else uh, because he doesn't play it with that same panache. But you are absolutely right because all of Belasco's threats play very similar to Jafar hypnotizing the Sultan. And Belasco trying to kill Cal makes no sense. In his next training scene with Kane and with Katie, Belasco is trying to literally kill Cal in front of everybody in the room, which makes no sense because Cal is so in favor with the king that, like, if you're Belasco, you'd want to keep sucking up to the king because you want the king to trust you. That's his whole thing, is the king overly trusts Belasco, much like the sultan over-trusts Jafar, and that's why they're able to get away with what they're getting away with because, well, this person would never double-cross me. So when you have somebody like Cal, who the king has quite an affinity for up to this point, and Katie, it like I could see him trying to do it behind closed doors, but to try and do it in front of everybody and almost expose yourself mm. doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It seems like, like Belasco comes off as being smarter than that, so I don't understand why he's trying to do it. Well, they do sort of cover that at the end um, 
once King Arthur, you know, sort of comes to uh, and Belasco leaves and and Cal's like, you're just going to let him get away. And the king does say all of the guards are still loyal to Belasco. Right. So I think that that's why even right in front of Kane, who could easily take him out, Kane really can't do anything about it because he... You know, they make a point of saying later, he doesn't have any land. He doesn't have a claim to anything. He's a teacher. So if he's going to keep his status in the castle, he can't really do anything to go up against Belasco because either he's going to lose his job or worse, the guards are going to take him out. Right. Speaking of Belasco's crazy threats, I really want to get to one of my other favorite lines uh, in this film when he goes and starts to pursue Sarah. And that I think that's also why Belasco's attempts, you know, they, they, they do a good job of this build because he's trying to keep everything behind closed doors. He's got his guards working for him and really things don't start to escalate until Calvin gets more and more involved in the picture and Belasco feels like the black Knight is posing more of a threat to any of his plans. Um, So he is trying to be subtle and he sees Sarah out in the garden and he tries to go and talk her up and pitch this idea of marriage. And he's still, you know, playing it pretty calm at this point. And You know, we were talking about before how you just kind of knew that Daniel Craig was going to be a superstar. To me, this is the scene where you knew Kate Winslet was going to blow up because she says a rose will prick you. He compares her to a garden rose. Right. And she says a rose will prick you, but I will do far worse. I remember as a kid. I mean, that was when I instantly fell in love with Kate Winslet. She has been one of my favorite actresses ever since. Um, But it was just this scene and her delivery of that line. Um, I want to touch on something here, uh, that we just were kind of getting to and alluding to, especially in regards to the blacksmith, right? So Melissa, who had brought this film up for, uh, for review, she had sent us a very nice email with her views on the film, but she did ask an interesting question and she said, because I want to get into like the picnic scene because mm-hmm. that's just about where we are. And Calvin takes Katie on the bicycle that he has the blacksmith make. And Melissa said it would be hard. It's hard to imagine that the blacksmith could make this overnight. How long do you guys think that mm. he's been in Camelot for? I mean, they never state the passage of time. I know that as the movie gets drawn out a little bit more, Calvin's not really in a rush to get back to his family because he wants to spend more time with Katie. Right. I think we're somewhere between a week and a half to two weeks, I think is sort of where we're living here. That would have been my best guess initially but I'm thinking it might even be more a week to a week and a half because in the scene where they're skating and they go to breakfast with King Arthur and I only know this because of the Borsnout ongoing joke with my brother uh 
Calvin asks, what's for breakfast? And he's like, leftovers. And there is a pig's snout on the table. So that is day one. And I think from there, they go to Cal's first training. Um, so that's like a hard two days. I think after that, time kind of expands in a weird way. Um, because then you do get this other scene of a second training, which I really love, where they're at the pond and yes. they're using the the sticks. This is before the bike date. Right. So I think you could argue that this is a third day. Um, I was very impressed that they had both actors do it. No stunt doubles, no nothing. Like, she knocks him into that pond. Yeah. And is that the, um, that's the same scene later where he steals a kiss on her? No, that is... How could you forget your favorite, the super glue? Oh, that's right. That was the next training session. Yeah. So I, I. But before the kiss. So now we've got at least three training days plus his first day. Yeah. So okay. I, I think we're about three or four. I think the training sessions are broken up with date days. So we've probably got at least five days accounted for. Yeah. Plus the tourney, six. And then the return. So it's at least seven. Yeah. You figure it's at least seven. Days. At least a week, yeah. Plus the day that she gets kidnapped and he and King Arthur. Oh, that's an I overnight. Think that's, I think that's, maybe that's two days. All right, so days. Your, your week and a half is probably so correct. So we're probably closer to nine or ten days. Yeah. That he's there, roughly. Yeah, okay. As we're talking this out. And I'll buy that. I would buy it. Let's talk about the picnic scene, the date scene, right? Yes, this is after, okay, so at this point, they've had the training where he's actually on a horse. Yes. Um, it is revealed that Sarah is seeing Kane because they're also out riding horses before uh, Calvin's training. Yes. Um, and this is what I wanted to circle back to because you mentioned it before. I really like that they held this reveal because... We have seen Sarah refuse Belasco on her own. And then when he asks the king and like really starts threatening him to force Sarah's hand in marriage, we see her stand up to her father and says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let the tournament decide. So I love that those two things are independent of her relationship with Kane. We have established her as a strong female character on her own who does who does not want to be forced into marriage before we even know that she's in love so she's not doing this for the sake of Cain she's doing it for herself and it totally tracks with her being the black knight because she has been in control the entire time that's the difference between her and princess jasmine right you could sit, sit there and say well she's just she's medieval princess jasmine except Jasmine was holding out for the right person, turns out to be Aladdin, but she would sneak, she, she snuck out to the village, yes, like Sarah does, but she loses control of yes. the situation. Sarah never loses control of the situation. Well, I think that's probably because Jafar is a lot more of a psychotic villain than Belasco. Agreed. Um, uh, but okay, so yes, Calvin glues himself to the saddle in this lesson, totally eats it yet again, kisses Katie, and this is what sets up the bike date because she's mad at him. And then he shows her that he had this thing built and they go for a lovely, beautiful uh, cinematography here. 
Yeah, and I like the crude design of the of the trike. I love it. It looks really cool, and they have that nice picnic scene. Again, cinematography, really good. Um, and I buy them together. This is the thing. Other than the fact that he's 15 and she's 20, and they share a kiss. Kiss on the cheek. They haven't even, like, kissed kissed well, yet. But it happens later. Oh, after and the date, you're right. After the date. And it's like... Look, they're professionals. They're actors and actresses. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking great offense to this, um, but I think that that to me is actually a compliment to the both of them because you do buy them as something that works. I think that that was one of the things I liked most about this as a kid too, because they're portraying young enough characters where even as a nine year old watching this you could sort of relate to it, to having that crush, to having the butterflies. Um, And then they do take that one step further because you have that really nice scene between uh, Katie and Sarah where Sarah sort of gets it out of her that, like, she's in love with Calvin. Um, You know, I think that that's a bit strong, especially over the course of a week. But at the same time, I mean, at that age in high school, you know, you have a different crush every single week and you think you're in love and you have no idea what love is. So I I think that that was all really well done. Something that I think works and yet doesn't at the same time is Belasco again. Because now they have their date and a great reveal is that Belasco has one of his men in Katie's room who has now taken her hostage while Cal is on the other side of the door talking to her. Mm -hmm. Great reveal. Well done. I buy the fact that Belasco is going to take Katie hostage to force Sarah's hand. And I understand that he's going to frame Calvin for the crime because then if he gets the okay from the king to execute him, he's out of the picture. Right. But... He goes and tells the king. And I'm jumping a little bit here because Sarah goes and grabs Calvin and says, this is what Belasco is doing. Go warn my father. Mm -hmm. And he does. But the thing is, Belasco has told Sarah that he's going to kill Katie if she doesn't agree to marry him. And then he gives her an extended deadline on making that decision. Mm hmm. And then goes to the king and already tells him that Katie's dead. So what were to happen two days from now, three days from now, if 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 Sarah were to come back and say, I'll save my sister and agree to marry you, and now all of a sudden, oh wait, look, Katie's alive, here she is. How do you tell the king that she's dead and then produce her later? No, you're right. And this whole thing does get a little clunky because you also assume that Sarah is not going to talk to her father because that was one of my notes where um, I was thinking that we needed a bit more context as to what Sarah gives Calvin so that her father knows that he's speaking the truth. I like this little moment between Sarah and Calvin. I think it's really good because they haven't interacted much before, but she obviously knows that Katie's in love. She knows that Calvin will be able to help. Uh, I love that she throws the guards off of his track and and gets him out. Um, But yeah, this is where it sort of fell apart for me because it's like, why is she relying on him 
to go and give this news to King Arthur. I think that we can assume it's because she is the Black Knight is going to go and take care of business, but that doesn't happen until much later. And we obviously don't know it's her at this point, but she doesn't do anything immediately until the next day when they need horses because he crashes the bike. Correct. And the Black Knight arrives with two horses for Cal and King Arthur. And that's the first time that King Arthur learns that the Black Knight is on his side. Now, as far as Belasco knows, King Arthur doesn't know that to begin with and and never would. So why didn't Belasco just say, I saw Calvin? Because now the king knows that Calvin has been spending time with Katie. Why not say Calvin handed Katie to the Black Knight? who has now kidnapped her. Because this whole time, as soon as Cal shows up, Belasco starts telling him, starts telling Arthur that he's a spy for the Black Knight. Right. And then you have trust established between Sarah and Cal because Sarah knows that her sister was not handed to the Black Knight. That would have been a much better way to go about it and it's so disappointing too because they've done such a good job with Belasco up until now you know like he has asked uh the king nicely to just cancel the tournament and let him marry Sarah his guards have talked to to him about joining the tournament and he's brushed it off no I'm not going to do it right then he tries going through Sarah himself and asking nicely none of this is going to work anymore the Black Knight's popularity is building and and now he's taking more drastic measures. So they've done such a nice job of this slow climb to get here. And yeah, in this scene, it all falls apart. I also feel like we need a bit more context as to where this dungeon is and the distance that yes. they've traveled with Katie. We get it later when Calvin and King Arthur go after her, but it totally comes off as her being downstairs. Yeah, like they left the castle to go to the castle. Yes, because, I mean, we see her, and again, all shot really well because they've just had their date. It's dusk. It's not too dark where you can't see anything, but that, I think, is it might actually be a detriment in this case because they get her out of the castle and into a coach, and then they leave on a dirt path. And we've seen how Camelot, the castle is right, the the village, rather, is right outside of Camelot, the castle. Right. So you have to get through the village on this stagecoach. I buy all of that. We do not see this moat until Calvin and King Arthur get there. So it just doesn't play as two different castles. Because the next time we see Katie, they're throwing her into the dungeon. We don't know the moat is there yet. Yeah. I do like what they develop here, though, with Cal and King Arthur. I like the two of them together. I like the relationship that they form. I like that King Arthur sees what his perception is outside of the castle gates. Uh, I think all of that and everything that they do here, and even leading to her being broken out and them fighting off Belasco's men, I think all of that works. Yeah, I really like the relationship that they develop. However, before... Cal does give the news about Katie. He sees, he goes back down to talk to Merlin and have Merlin wish him luck. So he sees the king talking to Merlin as well. Uh, 
well, Merlin hasn't appeared to him, but the king is just kind of thinking out loud. So after seeing the king have this moment where he's looking at Excalibur and, and feeling like he's not worthy of carrying it again, I feel like Calvin just should have been a little bit more delicate explaining the state of Camelot because he's like, they hate you. Like, he could have just said, you know, they don't have the highest opinion of you. This is why. Um, and then maybe have it come out a little bit more in these other moments of bonding because it it does, everything else unfolds really nicely. But I think it would have meant more if Calvin helped King Arthur to see it on his own. Agreed. I think that something that... I have to call attention to one of the greatest movie deaths of all time comes in this movie. And it's something that you would think would come out of like an 80s horror flick. Death by Discman. This seems <laughs> like something from Killer Clowns from Outer Space where Cal uses his Discman and uses the laser from inside the Discman to shine into the eyes of one of Belasco's men who clumsily falls from a castle spire into a moat, more horrific CGI that makes the film look like something out of the 80s. But I just have to call attention that it, it is one of the best movie kills in history. <laughs> no, and I do like the fact that they call back to the disc man and they have him use it again. See, if that was the only thing in the backpack, then it would have been perfect because now he's got his weapon of choice and it will have got him out of almost every single situation that he needed it for. Yeah. Um, it is a very good payoff because if King Arthur had to take this guard down with Excalibur, I mean, I'm sorry. We have this huge moment again where Calvin reveals that he's had Excalibur the whole time and he, he passes it off to the king. And this is the king's comeback moment, right? He's He's got his confidence back. He's going to scare off some guards or so we think. No, he is blindingly waving this thing around. And we regress the character again because he looks too old and fe feeble to be operating it. So it's like we've gone from he had dementia to he doesn't have dementia anymore because now he understands what his subjects are going through. He wants to right the wrong. He's got his confidence back. Gee, I wish I had Exc Excalibur. Well, you've got it. And now he can hardly hold it up. Yeah, and it's a shame because it's a really good-looking prop. It is. And, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's supposed to look heavy, but you don't need to play it that way. <laughs> you can't lift it. You should be able to use it. And if he can't lift it, then he's got to give it to Cal. That would have been very effective. There you go. Um, let's get to the tournament as we're getting towards the end of the movie here. Fantastic set. Love the set, love the costumes, cinematography's good. The extras, all very impressive. Makes like, they me, went all out. Makes me want to go have a Pepsi and a turkey leg at medieval times, <laughs> like in the cable like in the cable guy. Like, now it's what I want to do, and I think there is one in Orlando, so I may have to look into this. Uh, there's every, Orlando's got all the touristy stuff. If there's going to be a medieval... If there's a medieval times in New Jersey, there has to be one in, in Surely Orlando. there's one in Orlando. Um... But I found it interesting that out of nowhere, there's a time limit on it. Like when 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 Kane doesn't fall from his horse and he trots off set off the field, they're like, well, he but he has time to return. 
according to who? Yeah. Uh, where, since when is there a time limit on this? And who's keeping pace of the time? Yeah, and you really don't need that because they've already shown that on a technicality they're going to keep him in because they're obviously all rooting for him. I love I, I mean I love the King's comeback speech and I love that he opens the tournament up to everyone because he clearly at this point wants Kane to be his successor and not just because yeah because I don't he doesn't know that he's dating his daughter at this point I, I think he I, I think he, he knows, has a hunch he doesn't know yeah I think he suspects, but I think he just likes Kane enough where he's like, not only am I going to lift this rule, but like, you have to get this done because you're the only person worthy to take over for me. And you're the only person who is capable of taking out Belasco. So like, you really have to get this done. Um, so I, I like all of that. Um, and I think it's believable that that's why, you know, once Calvin points out that technically he's still on the horse so they can keep him in he's like all right i'll stall um but i don't think you need the time limit especially no. because you have such a good reveal anyway where belasco he dings him theoretically it, it's supposed to play that he knocks his head off and then you reveal that it's calvin because he's been ducked under the thing the entire time which right. does work for the age here because you don't have a full-grown man yeah I think even you have to give it that. Yeah, it works for the age. Um, and ultimately, Calvin wins the tournament, but doesn't want Sarah. He wants Katie. So more or less gives Katie, I guess Katie t just takes the option to pick and she picks Kane. So everybody ends Sarah. up- Sarah. Or Sarah picks Kane, excuse me. So everybody ends up where they're supposed to. I don't want to gloss over this reveal. I remember as a kid, when you see Kate Winslet pull that helmet off, there was nothing like that. Like, and that that's where I really did fall in love with this film as a kid, because it really did give you a strong female character to look up to. And now we go back to present time. Cal gets to relive his baseball game. He hits a home run that Aaron Judge couldn't hit, but he does it. <laughs> Um, in I'd... front of King Arthur and Katie, who have now, I guess now we're going to use Merlin in the afterlife to just time pop travel, in and out. pop in and out so that Katie can have a relationship now with Calvin. I mean, I do like that in the short time we have seen Merlin and Cal interact, they've developed enough of a relationship where Merlin kind of gives him that wink and a nod and he brings him back before the strikeout to give him a second chance. And I mean, then you lose the whole arc of... He comes back with this confidence now. Um, I don't know that you needed the King and Katie there, especially, well, maybe just Katie to show that this relationship is, I don't know, I'm going to go on possibly, but it's such a nice moment with the King where he gives him the Swiss army knife. That was such a good ending for the two of them and the bro story that developed. I'm fine leaving it there. I didn't need to see him whittling with the Swiss, the Swiss army knife. Um, but I don't know that you needed Katie either. I, I kind of go back and forth with this because he wanted to go home for Cal. It was never a question of should I stay or should I go? Should I pursue this relationship with her or go back home? It was always, I have to get home. So you made your choice. Let's move on to talking about the cast, starting with Thomas Ian Nicholas. I've liked him in basically every movie that he's been in. 
I love him in Rookie of the Year. We we all love him in American Pie because he's the jerk that always seems to get what is coming to him. Um, and then he plays Walt Disney. So, I mean, look, like, I like him. I think that he was really typecast in this role. And for all of the aforementioned reasons, my issue is not with him. My issue is how my issue is with how they wrote the character. I agree. I think that the character falls victim to a lot of 90s tropes, particularly that California laid back tie dye speech. Your favorite. Uh huh. It's everything you love about Max from Hocus Pocus. Valley speak. They even call it out. Valley I, speak. They do. No, it's true. Um, so I think the issue there is more with the writing, particularly for this character, than it is than it has anything to do with his performance. But I've always liked Thomas Ian Nicholas. Um, I mean, I think his earlier work. He always seemed like kind of a one-trick pony for me. I think he was typecast a lot because even as Kevin in American Pie, you're talking about him uh, coming off as the jerk. But to me, he was always just kind of that like, I, I maybe clueless is going too far, but like just kind of like the aw shucks guy, just always, always wanting to be the boyfriend he like he is here. He thought he knew more than he actually did. Exactly. And I think the same kind of applies here. I mean, it's not like American Pie where he's trying to pursue one thing from his girlfriend. But similarly, he is making all of these grand gestures for Katie just to get her to like him. And I think that also speaks to how they wrote this character to have that lack of self-confidence. And he thinks he's got to do, you know, he's he's got to have the rollerblades made and he's got to have the bike made just to get her to like him when he was doing just a, a fine job on his own. Uh, but with that said, I don't want that to take away from anything we said about their relationship being very believable. And, you know, to Thomas Ian Nicholas's credit, um, what really won me over more than anything else was seeing him play Walt Disney in Walt Before Mickey, which if you've not checked out, um, I can't recommend enough that you try and get your hands on a copy of that because to me he's better than Tom Hanks in that role he's really good is it just me or is his haircut wildly inconsistent in this movie it is wildly inconsistent it is totally doing the Sean Hunter in Boy Meets World See, scene by scene, his hair is completely different lengths, styled differently. Yeah, sometimes it's super thick. I mean, I think it's most notable when he's looking into the well because everything is like falling forward. But it does look a little bit different. All right. So it's not just me. No, it's not. It's very noticeable. I've I've been noticing that since I was nine years old. <laughs> Paloma Baeza plays Princess Katie. I thought she was good. I totally buy their relationship together. This was her first role. So for her first film, I think she carried it very, very well. Um, and, and I think she was great opposite everyone, not just Thomas and Nicholas, but in all of her scenes with Kate Winslet. I thought they were great together. Josh Ackland plays King Arthur. I said it before. We know him as Hans. So knowing him as Hans, it's odd to kind of see him in this role because I think he works for comic relief, but we said it earlier, they kind of 
dumbed down King Arthur like a lot to the point where, I mean, he's literally there. There's a scene where he's talking to Lord Belasco where he is literally with a finger picking the yolk out of a hard boiled egg. And he just looks ridiculous. Right. And like with the bubble gum, he's it's dribbling out of his mouth while he's talking to Belasco. I mean, I I think they dumb him down in particular in those scenes with Belasco because I mean Belasco doesn't need any help being the villain but I think that they lean into it like we as the audience don't need to be clued in that much that Belasco thinks he's dumb so they didn't need to go to those extremes necessarily but yeah I think there are some instances where they took it too far um I, I don't think that they needed to play him senile, but I will say I appreciate the efforts to water down a character so that he's not sitting there on his throne puffing his chest out and we as the audience don't want to root for him. He has a very full character arc once he gets Excalibur back, so we have to buy into that. We have to like him. And... I feel like there weren't too many other ways to go about it other than making him kind of clueless. Art Malik plays Lord Belasco, and I think that he's a good villain, but I think he could have been a better villain if Arthur hadn't been watered down so much. I get the point that you're trying to make where we're trying to still root for King Arthur, but they almost make Lord Belasco less impressive because he's sort of outsmarting a dimwit. So I, I think that if they would have had like mental metal against mental metal mm. and the two of them equaled each other, but Lord Belasco was just always a step ahead and he was really calculated with watching his steps and making his decisions and doing all the right things so that the king would believe him. I think that it would have served the character better. I don't know, because I think there was a good, a really good build with him. Um, I feel like he was calculated. I feel like he was always a step ahead. But to your point, I will give you that, that he goes from Lord Belasco to Lord Ballistic very quickly. Um, and it's just that extreme where after Sarah refuses him, after, you know, he forces the king to talk to her and try to force her hand into marriage. Um, and and then the king's just like, yeah, I talked to her, but she's going to let the tournament decide. Then he becomes unhinged. Um, so it is a quick leap, but I thought they did a really good job building to that. Um, and to the writers and the actors credit, um, I really like that as much as he reads Jafar, they walked a very fine line without making it feel like they totally copied that character or that it was the animated character come to life. I actually would have liked if in the live action Aladdin remake, they did play it more like Belasco instead of the Jafar that we got. But I think they did a good job differentiating the two. Kate Winslet as Princess Sarah. I mean, look, she steals the show, right? It's not a surprise. As you said, you could see it as a kid that she was destined for big things. Um, and I'm just glad that this was not 
held against her, a, <laughs> you know, a film that was critically panned. Um, because I think that it's very easy for certain talent to kind of fall by the wayside when they take a role like this, right? Like, in a film that is just a critical disaster, sometimes it spells disaster for your career. It's nice to see that this was not held against her. Uh, yeah, clearly she bounced back. Um, yeah, th- this just started my absolute obsession with Kate Winslet. She steals every scene that she's in. I just, as a child, before I really appreciated the acting, um, I was just obsessed with the aesthetic of the character. I loved her dresses. I loved her hair. Um, and I did, at a young age, recognize that she was a very strong character to look up to. And we have hit on it quite a bit that they didn't write princesses like this in the 90s. Like, they were starting to come close with Ariel wanting to be on land, with Belle wanting an adventure and being able to hold her own when she trades places with her father when he's captured, and Jasmine wanting more for herself than an arranged marriage. But I feel like Princess Sarah just takes all of that one step further because she is pulling a Robin Hood on her father and giving to the poor and trying to help her kingdom and really step in for her mother because that's what is is needed in the kingdom just as much as her father needs it. And that's a really important part of the character that we didn't really get to hit on yet because a lot of the ways that these princesses were written in the past, you know, some of like, what we have deemed the weaker princesses like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. It goes back to the writing because these men writing these films didn't know how to write for women. So they would say that these princesses are good and we don't really get to see that a lot other than, well, the animals like them. And that's how us as the audience are supposed to be cued in to believe that they are good. So here we actually get to see Princess Sarah actively doing something to prove that she's a good person and she cares when, you know, she gives, she puts the food out in the middle of the kingdom. I think that gets very much watered down because they have the Black Knight hovering in the background and then Calvin and Katie show up after, I think this was right after the bike date and that's when... um, Calvin realizes that the Black Knight is one of the good guys. Right. But they don't really overtly say that the Black Knight is the one who put out all that food. And there's no explanation as to where the Black Knight got it from. It makes sense later on after the reveal that Sarah just took it out of the palace and gave it to the people. Right. Um, but yeah, I just think it's for, for as little screen time as she has, just such a well-written character and... Uh, the character just leaps off the page because of her. Daniel Craig plays Master Kane. I said it before, he kind of gives himself to this role. He absorbs this role. He absorbs the character. Um, he, he does a really good job. He's a good character that's kind of lost in this film. And I'm only realizing now that he's the third James Bond that Disney has cast because I forgot about wow. Timothy Dalton was what's his name? Prickle pants. 
in Toy Story. Yes, but so, that was after Timothy Dalton's James Bond. Well, yeah, but but I'm they saying, got two ahead of James Bond. They did. I'm also I don't think they've done anything with Pierce Brosnan, and I'm like certain they've done nothing with Roger Moore. So I think those are the only two that they're missing. I don't. I don't think Roger Moore ever did anything with Disney. Pierce Brosnan, I'd have to look at, but I don't think there was anything. I mean, th- there's no instance like casting Sean Connery in his first role. I mean, you were so ahead of the curve with that. But even even here, it's one of his first. Daniel Craig. The UK casting department just <laughs> hit the jackpot on this film because they did yeah. have a separate one for LA and and the UK, but. Man, that casting director knew how to pick them. Um, I do disagree, though, with what you said that uh, the character sort of gets buried. I mean, in the Disney canon, yes, but in the film, no. I think he's a standout character because of this performance. I think, you know, he's he's just so likable. You're rooting for him from the jump. And by the time the stakes are very high because you want him to be the one to succeed Arthur and you want him to be able to win Sarah's hand. You're completely invested. Final thoughts on a kid in King Arthur's court. Do you want to go first? Yes. I think it's a good cast. I think it's a talented cast. I think at its absolute best, the movie is decent. Um, do I like the film? It's okay. I'd hardly say that I like it. Do I like it more now than I did as a kid? Yes, only because I understand all of the reasons why I don't like it, which is a weird <laughs> reason why you would like a film. Um, and to, to risk repeating myself at nauseum, it has everything to do with this clueless baseball player thing and for some people you probably think that I'm diving into minutia but I don't think that it is I think that this completely alters the character in a way that makes no sense I think that you set up a story that's not believable I think you set up a character that I don't really want to root for because I find it so unbelievable I found it unbelievable as a nine-year-old when I was in the target demographic So with that being said, put him in any other role. If he would have just been a bookworm that was playing baseball in P.E. and didn't know how to play the game and got picked on because he struck out, but at least maybe he tried and struck out and embarrassed himself, and then he got sent back, and then he could redeem himself, and then he'd get the respect of his peers, I would have a completely different viewpoint of this movie. But... For all of those reasons, I feel like I'm on Shark Tank. I'm out. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you have identified your issues and sort of worked through them. You did just make me realize something, though. When you mentioned the PE class, you need the parents there watching because otherwise, what is his motivation to go back? So they did have to have some sort of community game where the parents are there watching. I think the real question, though, that everybody is going to want to know, do you like this better than Hocus Pocus? Um, it's, it's a very hard question to answer. 
Well, I'm going to make you answer it. I think I like this more because at no point do I dislike the characters. I don't like how they wrote Cal, but that doesn't mean I dislike him. I almost universally dislike at least half of the characters in Hocus Pocus. I think, okay, I'll, 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 I'll give you this. Do what do I think the setup is? Which which setup do I think is better? I think the setup in Hocus Pocus is better. I think that some of the comedy in Hocus Pocus is better. But I think that as a full finished product, I like this more. That's about the answer that I thought you were going to have because I didn't think you were going to completely knock down a film with Daniel Craig in it that far. I mean, listen, if he was in Hocus Pocus, I'd tear that thing down and burn it. <laughs> I, I'm just, look, my, my stance on Hocus Pocus has softened slightly only because after going to the House of Mouse Expo and being in that panel with the cast and seeing how much, not only do they admit that the film was a critical and box office disaster, but they also recognize that it's a polarizing film and they appreciate the people that watch it year in and year out disliking it because it's become a staple. I watch Hocus Pocus every year and I don't like the movie, but I watch it every year and every year I go, maybe this will be the year. I appreciate the cast. I still hate them as characters, but I like them as people. So that's the only place that I've softened, really. But, I mean, look, we did a live watch last year at Halloween. Maybe it becomes a yearly thing where I sit there and do a live watch. Every year I say this is going to be the year that I like Hocus Pocus, and every year I walk away going, maybe next year. So maybe, maybe this year's next year. I don't know, but... I suppose uh, we will find out, you know, I guess we'll find out in October. We'll have to wait and see. Well, before I give my final thoughts, I will say I think this was a really good place to start our baseball month because now that we've identified what you don't like about this film and that is how unrealistic it is as far as the baseball element it's going to be a good build off of that. Yeah, I it's think a so. good jumping off point uh, to show what Disney does get right in these other baseball films that we're going to talk about. Uh, but for my final thoughts, um, pretty short and sweet. I really enjoyed this as a kid and it holds for me now. Do I think it's a great film? No, uh, but I think it's still really enjoyable to watch. If you haven't seen it, um, I definitely recommend it for a family movie night. You know, it's just completely innocent and yeah. fun um somewhat edutational i dare say um you know just to see some of these sets and what feudal times were like um am i gonna watch it every single year no probably not but it's nice to know that should i want to revisit it i'm not gonna go oh my god what was i thinking Right. Well, we want to know what you have to say about a kid in King Arthur's court. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio, or you can email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, 
Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning. She helped us pick the right time of year to visit to make sure we don't have big lines. And she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us a great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice in making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World, and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, maybe you want to go to Disneyland and... Take a stop in Reseda while you're over there. You can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news, but before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. Don't forget, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code monoreal10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's services and all of her artwork. It is online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Let's talk some Disney news this week. But I actually want to lead off with something that's not exactly Disney news, but it's related to our topic of conversation here. We mentioned Rookie of the Year earlier, which you can now see on and off on Disney+. Plus because it is a Fox title, but sometimes, as we know, the Fox titles get released and go to other streaming services, it was Tom and, uh, Thomas Ian Nicholas's first baseball film and superior one. Um, he recently pitched the idea of a remake or a sequel um, to Fox, but they're not ready, so he's thinking about crowdfunding it. First off, I don't... I mean, you know better than me. I don't know that you can just crowdfunded and do it independently because it's it's an IP that's owned by a studio. Also, we don't need it. You don't need a re I mean, if you really want to remake it, you can, but there's no reason to and you don't need a sequel. What's he going to do? Slip and fall again? Like I'm fine leaving well enough alone. Well, what's really funny is that this whole thing sort of started off as a joke because Robert Downey Jr. on April Fools' Day made a fake headline on his Instagram it was called a breadline article instead of deadline, and he announced this fake casting. So Thomas Ian Nicholas did sort of the same thing. He used the breadline headliner text, and that was his way of announcing the sequel. But then he got interviewed about it, um, and he said that that was a joke, but he had actually pitched Fox on this idea. Um, I don't think that he could do this, even if he were to have a successful crowdfunding campaign because Fox would own the rights to it but I'm also not in support of celebrities who do have the money crowdfunding films when there are other independent films who really need the money and don't have that audience that that's what crowdfunding is it's for the people who don't have the connections to make it happen so that they can make it happen 
Thomasy and Nicholas has the connections and he was told no. So if people want this film, it will get made down the line with a proper budget. Disney Plus has announced that they have a docu-series called Ed Sheeran, The Sum of It All, coming to Disney Plus on May 3rd. I mean, look, Disney is leaning hard into these celebrities, especially the musicians that, you know, are hot right now, right? Like, they've got Miley. They did it with Idina Menzel. They did it with Taylor Swift. It doesn't surprise me that Ed Sheeran is getting his docuseries on the streamer. It's not a surprise. Um, I just think it's kind of risky because look at what happened at one point with Rock and Roller Coaster where there was, I, I forget exactly even what it was, but they had dug something up on Steven Tyler. And that was always kind of a surprise to me because he obviously had a past. He lived through the 70s. We all know that he did drugs and they still gave Aerosmith the ride. So when this controversial news about Steven Tyler came up, you know, immediately people were saying, well, are they going to pull Aerosmith off of Rock and Roller Coaster? What are they going to do? And I, I think there were some there was some serious thought put into taking rock and roll or uh, taking Aerosmith off the ride. Um, Point is easier to do with Disney plus to just pull a couple of episodes down. Should something happen down the line than it is to overhaul an entire ride. But um, that's sort of where my mind goes when they announce things like this. And it's like, gee, you're, you're really putting a lot of faith. I mean, they are picking their artists very carefully who they do put on Disney plus, but um, I'm just surprised that they would take that risk when an artist might fall out of favor with the public. And, and now you've put money into a show that may have to be taken down. Well, We also have, speaking of musicians that I don't think are going to fall out of favor with the general public, Muppets Mayhem is coming to Disney Plus on May 10th, focusing on Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. I am so stoked for this. Please, please, please just let this be the thing that brings Muppets back in full force. This is the thing. I'm I'm. I'm excited about it, and yet I'm not at the same time because it's Disney. It's the Muppets. This should be a match made in heaven, and it'll be four episodes, and they're going to give up on it and move on to something else. It's just, it seems like it's what Disney does with the Muppets. Like, they just don't know what to do with them. Well, I mean, it's different because the last time with the Muppets, well, no, they did have Muppets now where they did all those shorts, but before that, when they were on network television, I think, was it? It was ABC. No, it was ABC. It's right. They they couldn't have put it on CBS. That was, to me, like the most brilliant, besides Jason Segel's, the most brilliant modern iteration of the Muppets. And I wish that they had continued that on Disney Plus where they were uh, doing a night show. Um, So I, I agree here. Like, I'm very excited for it, but I hope it's either like a six part or 10 part series where it tracks as one thing and then if they don't do it anymore we have a complete story or this is the beginning of a muppet's resurgence disney also announced the start of 7000 layoffs that uh, we knew were coming and bob iger said that 
in tough moments, we must always do what is required to ensure that Disney can continue delivering exceptional entertainment to audiences and guests around the world now and long into the future. Now, my understanding, and I think the understanding of many, is that these are not frontline employees. These are mostly Disney Plus employees. So it's just kind of interesting that we're talking about Disney Plus maybe taking a risk on musical acts. Disney Plus not really knowing what they're doing with the Muppets. This is sort of the fallout for when you... Do, and this has nothing to do with Ed Sheeran. This is really more Muppet-related. Not that you're firing 7,000 people exclusively because of the Muppets. But where we're post-pandemic, people are not sitting in their houses. They're not streaming nonstop anymore. And you're not cranking out that much content that's diverse enough. And by diverse, I mean something other than Marvel and Star Wars. Like, you've you've got to diversify your storytelling a little bit. And yes, the Muppets do that. But like I said, the Muppets do it for five weeks and then they go away for two years, three years. Like... And and now that the prices are going up and the legacy prices that we had when we were day one subscribers, they're throwing those out the window. So this is the fallout of what happens when you don't really nail the streaming service. Right. And I think that, you know, this is also part of Iger's master plan. Uh, we are, you know, by no means celebrating that 7,000 people are losing their jobs. I mean, this actually started a couple of weeks ago and we didn't want to report on it because, you know, it's, it's a bummer. It's a total bummer and we don't want to deliver bad news, but I think this sort of relates to our next topic, which is the shareholder meeting. And I think that unfortunately to make way for what Iger has planned, this is what had to happen, is that those jobs had to come out of Disney Plus because he did say that over the next 10 years, 13,000 jobs are going to be created along with a $17 billion investment into the parks. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of speculation um, about a fifth gate. I don't know that those numbers... Yeah, are are enough to support a fifth gate. But what it sounds like to me is a big expansion. And for my money, I'm thinking that we're going to get a plan for Dino Land very soon. It's either that or they're going to expand Magic Kingdom behind what is New Fantasyland. They've talked about expanding that area and doing a villains area. Um. I mean, look, we've been saying for a long time, and it like I hate to say, like it was speculation, but not really because it doesn't take a genius to figure it out. Universal investing so much money into opening another gate, they're opening Epic Universe in 2025, so we're less than we're about two years away from the open of Epic Universe. Disney had to respond with something, so it's not a shock that this is what they're doing. However. I also anticipate that it's Disney, so they say that now, and they say they're going to spend it over the next decade. 
I don't think that that means that we're getting like $2 billion per year over the next decade. I think that we're going to start seeing them break ground in two years to finish something in eight years. No, and I hope that some of that budget also goes towards refurbishment and giving the rides that need a little love a little love. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw this, but they had leaked the... um concept art for the Mary Poppins attraction. Yeah. I am so glad that they didn't that they didn't move forward with it. I thought it was supposed to be a water ride, not teacups. Yeah, it it's just an indoor teacup ride. It was a jolly holiday teacup ride. So you, all of that just for teacups. It I mean, well, that was the other guy. So I, I'm glad that after all of that, like imagine having waited all that time and it's like Mary Poppins is opening, folks. Teacups. <laughs> what a letdown that would have been. That would have let me down almost as much as the yeah. next bit of news. Oh, no. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand times more. We don't need more live action remakes. If they are intent on doing them, however, they should be doing them with films that are a bit dated. Perhaps something that you think you can improve on. Maybe you want to do The Sword and the Stone. Great movie. But how cool would that be seeing that in live action, right? No. Instead, we're going to, we're going to, like, we beat a dead horse when it comes to live action remakes in general. But now we're going to beat a taxidermied horse because (laughs) you are now doing a live action remake of Moana. This movie's not even 10 years old. Talk about squeezing blood from a stone. Yeah, this was really, really disappointing news. Um, I completely agree with you. That was my first thought. I thought the whole point of the live action remakes was, especially when they started, to either do a retelling because there's something different that they can do now do a retelling because things were problematic and they want to, you know, put a modern take on it or just do a remake simply because we have technology now that can support things like Cinderella's dress transformation. And we can do that with people in a computer. So, you know, I had kind of resigned to the fact that they're all going to get remade eventually anyway. But this was shocking to do such a current film. I don't see a reason for it. Um, I I kind of feel validated with our feelings about Moana because it's like, if there's so much room for improvement, why didn't you do it the first time five years ago? Or no, seven years ago now with, yeah. with that story. Yeah, yeah. But they praised that film so much for the music and the animation. And it should be for the animation because it's gorgeous. But it's like, you had so much confidence in it seven years ago. Why are you doing this now? Why are you retelling it? Um, I mean, we've said it a million times. We're just not fans of Moana. So I was not going to be super pumped about this out of the shoot. But I I just think this is utterly ridiculous to do it when the film is still so fresh. Uh, And I feel like a horrible person saying that because to hear The Rock speak about it and what it means to him personally and his family. um, 
you know, for him, I'm happy that he gets to tell his story, but he does enough with Disney. He he could write a story about his family and tell it. Or what would have been more effective if we want to keep cashing in on Moana, do a whole Maui spinoff like they did with the Olaf shorts. There are endless possibilities for prequels and sequels if they just make it Maui centric. But we don't need to remake the thing. This reeks of we have no ideas. Yeah. We have no new ideas. So we're going to remake, you know, like... How long until they do a live action Frozen? Oh, they're, it's, they're gonna it's sp- probably coming. They're going to spit out the third movie and immediately mm. be like, oh, and by the way, live action Frozen. Probably. Um, that's yeah. Honestly, that scares me for animation and what the future is for the medium. I think that they're just going to rely on Pixar. I have this feeling that it's just going to be, okay, Pixar does animation and we'll do everything else. It's sad, but that's where I think it's going. It's scary. All right. Uh, let's try to end on a high note here. Um, we have talked about doing a meetup at Disney Springs with all of you to go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and then to have a good emotional breakdown at Dockside Margaritas after. And we have decided that we are going to make that happen. Opening weekend. We have tickets secured. This is Jackie and I. Um, for Saturday, May 6th at 4 p.m. at the AMC at Disney Springs. You just looked. You said the theater is about two-thirds filled right now? There's still a good amount of seats available. Um, We got tickets for the Dolby screening, which I believe is the only one showing at 4 o'clock. Yes. Um, But we didn't do IMAX or anything like that. You know, we wanted the price point to be approachable, and timing-wise, we figured this would work out best. That way we could get some drinks after... Have a good cry. I don't want to cry too much because it is my birthday weekend. So regardless, even if you can't come and see the film, um, it's about a two and a half hour running time, I think. Yeah. Uh, so figure with the credits, we should be getting to Dockside around seven o'clock. So come out anyway, even if you can't get to the movie. But uh, the event is live on Facebook. And uh, let us know if you will be coming. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you all for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And for links related to the show, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.